there. She was going to come up there. Hope she's not allergic. No, she was having a ball. Great, you're live. You're live? Okay. So I'm trying to get his Now, what's that little message up there? Click here when live stream. Okay. So we're live. So we're live. Okay, you think we're live? Okay. You think it's recording or not? Yeah. Okay. Brings you. He knows. I you know. All right, folks. Thanks for your being here tonight. And uh, we're ready to go here. Let's have a word of prayer. And then we'll begin. Father, thank you again for your goodness to us this day and giving us another day in which to honor you and seek to glorify you, try to do your will. We thank you for this time we can study the Word of God and we ask the Holy Spirit will illuminate our hearts and minds to the truth that we'll be studying and that we can see how this would apply to us in our current lives and in our culture. Uh, we pray, Father, for uh, members of our class. We think of Ron Biggs and Ken Rapp who are dealing with health issues, and we continue to pray for them each day and pray you'll continue to bring healing to their bodies. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at uh, um, chapter 8. We're looking at uh, number 1 here, the basis of Christian conduct. Love, not knowledge. Um, love, not knowledge. I mean, uh, the basis of Christian conduct, love, not knowledge, 8, 1 through 13. Does everybody see that? Yeah, I, I have a rough day in my garage. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Does everybody see what, what page is that on? 17. Page 17? Okay, so we're on page 17. And... Uh, so let me, just, let me just review what this uh, chapters 8, 9, and 10 are about. They're about one Greek word pronounced adelothuton. And that Greek word is hard to translate. It's translated in our NIV, food sacrificed to idols. Food sacrificed to idols. And the unfortunate thing about that translation is is you think it means food sacrificed to idols, but it doesn't. <laughs> In the sense that it means more than that. Would you shut that door, please? Thank you. So that's where that thing Shut the door, please. Yeah, it's thanks. all Greek to me. Yeah, 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 that's right. So it means food sacrificed to idols, but it means eating food sacrificed to idols in an idol temple. Eating food sacrificed to idols that's being sacrificed to idols in an idol temple. Remember I told you last time that in a place like Corinth, there were at least 26 temples or sacred places. They had all kinds of celebrations in these places. There were no restaurants in those days. So people ate meals, had celebrations, birthdays, they had festivals, they, had, they celebrated the gods. So all these celebrations and festivals were celebrated in some temple, and you would go there and... Uh, you would have a meal off associated with this. And people who, most people couldn't afford meat. Meat was a luxury in the ancient world. Even up to modern times, meat was not eaten by poor people. That, that was not their diet. Uh, I was just reading an article about the diet of an average Roman, and it didn't include meat. Average Romans didn't, didn't have meat. So uh, people would go to these things because they would have meat, and we're mainly talking here about meat, so you'd have a god or a goddess sacrifice some meat and so forth, and people would get a portion of that. So they would go, but they were celebrating. They might be their local guild that they were in, craftsmen's or something like that. Remember in Acts chapter 19, when Paul is Ephesus, he gets in an uproar with the guild that's making these little statues for the goddess, goddess Artemis, you know. And they say, hey, Paul's come here, and he's going to ruin our business because people won't buy these statues of Artemis Ephesus was a big tourist place. It was like the Disney World of the day. And people came there from all over the, the ancient world there. And so, so the problem here is that when you go to these temples, you're worshiping the idol. So that's a big problem for these Corinthians who had gone to these temples all their lives. 
and now they're Christians. And so can I go to these places? Why can't I go to these places? Now, Paul will ultimately say what's wrong with it, but he doesn't say it until he gets to chapter 10. Now, if I was writing this, I'd just say it right. I'd just say it right like that. I'd say, hey, this is idolatry. You can't go to this temple. But Paul wants to talk about a, a bigger problem or another problem associated with this. And that is, <clears throat> there were a lot of people at Corinth were saying, well, you know, there are, these gods aren't real. They're not real gods. We know who the real true one God is, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, when we go to these temples, it's nothing. We're not, we're, we're not worshiping. I mean, we're not, that's not the true God. But Paul says the problem is you're influencing a lot of other people to go to these temples, weak believers, people who made profession, but they're, they still think these gods as real and this affects them. They may go back into idolatry. So the first problem he wants to talk about is how your conduct of saying uh, what you're doing. What you're doing is wrong, but because uh, Paul will say, you know, you're, you're right in a sense, these gods aren't real, but behind these idols are demons. So when people are worshiping idols, it's true, they're not worshiping real gods or anything, but Satan's behind all this. So it's wrong, <laughs> even though these gods aren't real. And what you're doing is wrong, in the, in, wrong in the sense it's idolatry, and I'm going to tell you that in chapter 10. But right now I'm telling you it's wrong because how you're influencing other Christians with your behavior, what you're doing to them. They're going to see you eating in this idol temple, and they're going to be troubled. Their conscience is weak. They, they, haven't, they haven't fully assimilated what you say you've assimilated. You know, it's not easy for people who have worshipped these gods all their life, and everybody worships them. And then Paul comes and says, hey, these gods aren't real. You know, here's the one true God, you know, and so forth like this. It's like a person who comes from Roman Catholicism and they come to be a Christian, you know, a genuine Christian. Sometimes it's hard for them to just say all that stuff was just hocus pocus. It was just, it wasn't really real what they were doing in the, you know, with all that ceremonies and all that stuff they had and all the, the mass and all that, you know, it can be hard for a Catholic to, to leave that church, for one thing. Even if they get saved, it's hard sometimes to leave. And it's hard to uh, kind of get rid of all that stuff out of your mind. Even though you have the Bible, you know the truth. You know, and kind of, it's hard, maybe hard for, you, for us if you haven't been in that kind of religion or something steeped in that. So I'm giving you the summary of, so you'll see what's going to happen here in chapters 8 through 13. So that's what we're talking about first, chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Uh, Paul says, the basis of Christian conduct is love, not knowledge. And I say here, um, well, we're here in food sacrifice to idols. We're here in place right here. Uh, I say here, uh, as we noted, Paul had probably already forbidden the Corinthians from going to pagan temples in his previous letter I say 1 Corinthians 5, 9, that should be 1 Corinthians 5, 11. Remember in chapter 5, we said that Paul had written a previous letter to the Corinthians that we don't have. He says, but now I'm writing to you, brothers, you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, nor greedy, an idolater or slanderer or drunkard or swindler. The only eat. I should have probably put 9 in there because that's where he talks about in this previous letter. So Paul had talked about this problem of idolatry in a previous letter. It's still going on. And he says, now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who, who is an idolater. Uh, you, you can't have fellowship with these idolaters and so forth. So idolatry is a big problem here. So he'll finally forbid it in the strongest possible terms in chapter 10, as I said. He'll say, wait a minute. Idol, behind these idols are demons. <laughs> they're not just these figures that you put up there. It's true they're not real gods, but there is a supernatural power behind it called Satan, a person called Satan and his demons. But his first concern here in chapter 8 is with the incorrect ethical basis of the Corinthians' argument in favor of such behavior. In other words, going to these pagan temples is absolutely wrong, but the Corinthians' theological arguments are at least some of the Corinthians, used to justify going are also wrong. 
This is what Paul will deal with first. He wants the Corinthians to ultimately free, flee from idols, he'll say in 10, chapter 10. But Paul also wants them to see the theological implications of their behavior and the need for the principle of love to guide all their behavior. Paul will forbid the Corinthians from attending pagan temples in chapter 10 because idolatry harms the individual. Here in chapter 8, Paul is concerned with the harm attending pagan temples does to one's brother or sister who observe it and thus be tempted to return to their previous idolatry. 8.10 will say, if someone sees you in an idol temple. So as I said, that's where this idol of futon translation is not exactly right when you say we're talking about food sacrifice to idols. We're talking about someone eating <laughs> in an idol temple. Because well, Paul will ultimately say in chapter 10, you can eat food sacrificed to idols. This food sacrificed to idols, remember, was first, most of the meat was sacrificed in the temple. Then it was sold in the meat market in, in the public square in Corinth. And Paul says, eat anything in the meat market and don't ask any questions. You can eat, because it's sacrificed to idol, it doesn't harm the meat. You can eat it and so forth like that. It doesn't affect it. So he's not against, it's not the meat that's the problem, you see. It's what's, it's the activity that's going on with the meat. It's the, it's the worship of the idol. So the heart of their problem, I say, the heart of the problem is primarily their attitude. The Corinthians think that the Christian conduct is based exclusively on knowledge, and that knowledge gives them the right to act as they will in this matter. For them, knowledge gives power, and power gives freedom and rights. So yeah, knowledge is very important, but... Uh, we have to use our knowledge in love with respect to other Christians. Uh, so Paul's, Paul's view is, 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 is different, as we said. Uh, the content of their knowledge is only partially correct, as, we just, as I just said. Uh, because I said, they're going to say, well, these gods don't really exist. That's true to an extent. They don't actually, there aren't any, there is no real god called Zeus. That's just, that's not true. But there is something behind this Zeus myth that's devilish and sinful. So Paul is saying this knowledge is not what should motivate us, but love for our Christian brothers, love for our Christian brothers and sisters, what's best for them. It doesn't mean we ignore truth, so you have to put all this in context. It doesn't mean we, 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 we ignore truth, but we, we have to be careful with truth that we don't harm a Christian brother. Um, so um, so we, we do have freedom we, we're, because we have knowledge and so forth. But freedom is not, true Christian freedom, remember, is not to do what we desire, whatever we desire, but freedom to do what God wants us to do, what pleases God and not self. Um, and so the point is, if you really love your brother and sister, Paul will say, you won't create a situation that could lead them back into idolatry. Let's look at that now. The way of love and the way of knowledge. Now, about food sacrifice to idols, that's that one word, idothutan, we know that we all possess knowledge. Notice that quotation marks there. But knowledge puffs up and love while love builds up. As Paul has done previously in his letter, he begins by citing the Corinthians' letter to him. We all possess knowledge. This is a question from their letter. Otherwise, Paul would be contradicting himself in 8.7. He says, not everyone possesses this knowledge. So you'll say, no, it's not true. We don't all possess the knowledge you claim that we possess. The knowledge, as we'll see in verse 4, is the knowledge that idols don't exist. So Paul said, they're saying, we, we all know that these idols don't exist. And Paul would say, yeah, there's truth in that, but we all haven't assimilated that, as he'll say, we'll explain. We all, there's still, people still think that there's something to these idols. They still think there's something going on there, that there's something real there. Uh, so I say here to the Corinthians' position, we all possess knowledge. Paul, in effect, says no. Knowledge, Paul says, puffs up the individual. And so knowledge can lead to pride, as we know, but that's not true of love. Love is not puffed up, but quite the opposite. It builds up. 
And Paul will go over this quite often in chapter 13. You remember what we call the love chapter sometimes. He says, if I have all knowledge, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. 8.2. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. For whoever loves God is known by God. Verses 2 and 3, as we'll see here, um, further qualify we all possess knowledge in verse 1. Paul's point is that the one who thinks they are in the know by the very fact has given evidence that they are self-deceived and true knowledge has eluded them. In our common parlance, we use the expression, the guy thinks he is something, you know. The guy thinks he's something or they're important. And uh, these people think they know everything. They, they have all knowledge. Um, so Paul says, what he seems here, if some Corinthians think they have attained to... Uh, some degree of knowledge, they really haven't reached the stage when they have, you know, when they really, nobody reaches the ultimate stage and they haven't really reached there. Because true Christian knowledge, as I've said, is, is inseparable from love, as verse 3 will explain here, whoever loves God is known by God. Now, verse 3 is not what we expect Paul to say. You know, he says, but those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. We expect Paul to say, whoever loves God has real knowledge. You know, that's what I would expect. That's what I would write if I was writing this. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God, that's the person who has, because we're contrasting love and knowledge here. But whoever loves God, that, that's, that's, that, that person has real knowledge. Instead, we read, is known by God. Whoever loves God, not has real knowledge, is known by God. This, however, is in accord with Paul's language elsewhere. Compare 13, 12. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Galatians 4, 9. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God. You know, it's true that we know God. We came to know God. But the truth is, something was prior to our knowing God, and that was God knowing or choosing us. God knew us first, you know. We love Him because He first loved us. So he, His knowledge, His love comes first. Um, so true Christian knowledge is inseparable from love which can only be produced by God's prior choice to love us. That's what verse 3 is saying. Whoever, whoever really loves God is somebody who God knows first. So Paul basically agrees with the Corinthians' knowledge that idols, which he will take up in the next three verses, he agrees with their knowledge about idols. Yeah, they're, they're not really real. But Paul's problem is that what the Corinthians are doing with their knowledge is wrong. So he begins his discussion here in verses 1 through 3 by qualifying their understanding of knowledge itself. As I said, Christian behavior, the ultimate thing is not knowledge. It's very important. You've got you to be right. You've got to know what you're right. But, but that can lead to pride. It can destroy others. And so we have to act in love. We have to think about what's best for the person now, what's best for the person is often the truth. I'm not saying that, you know. But, you know, sometimes, I mean, I've lived long enough to see truth misused, you know, sort of jammed down somebody's person's throat or something, sort of a truth to abuse them in a sense. So we have to be careful with that. Uh, now, Paul's going to spell this all out in chapters, in verses 7 through 13, as we'll see, especially in chapter 13, that whole chapter. Let's look now at the, uh, what, the content of the way, uh, way of knowledge. With this paragraph, Paul resumes what he began in verse 1 after the short qualifying discussion about the way of knowledge, love, superseding the way of knowledge. <clears throat> Again, he quotes from the letter, in this case with two statements affirming monotheism in verse 4. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that, quote, an idol is nothing at all in the world, and quote, there is no God but one. Paul begins in verse 1, we know that, which means he's affirming as true, 
what the Corinthians have said. He begins as in verse 1 and verse 4. We know that. That's true. An idol is nothing. And we know that there's no God. So this is a strong affirmation of monotheism. So we're arguing here, Paul's arguing there's only one God. He's denying that idols have any reality at all. But remember, the Corinthian argument is that since idols have no reality, and because there's only one God, then we can't be faulted for going to these temple and having meals at the temples since the gods represented by these idols do not in fact exist. I mean, that makes some sense. You know, you, you can make an argument there. But as we said, they don't really have true knowledge because as Paul explained in chapter 10, 19, and 20, as I've said a hundred times so far, demons are ultimately behind idolatry. But Mount, Paul is now concerned with the practical, uh, the effect that believing in idols has on the person who worships them. Verse 5, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, all things came, and from whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. <clears throat> so Paul now explains with this four, for even, even if there are so-called gods, they do not really exist. They do not actually exist in the form the pagans worship them. That is, there's no real Zeus. Zeus was, remember, the head of the Greek gods, lived on Mount Olympus. Nevertheless, they do, ex in a sense, exist in the subjective sense that people believe them to exist and worship them. These so-called gods were commonly designated gods <laughs> when referring to the traditional gods of the Greco-Roman religion. So the Romans adopted the Greek religious system, the pantheon, the pantheism, I mean the pantheon, the polytheism of the, of the Greeks, Mount, the gods lived on Mount Olympus. They were superhumans. Mount Zeus uh, and Harry, his wife. The, the Romans just gave different names to some of them. They called, instead of Zeus, they called Jupiter, you know, and instead of, they got Juno, and some of them were Apollo, the same, and so on. Some of them had the same names sometimes. They had different names, but they basically adopted the same and worshiped the same system of gods. The word lords refers to what are sometimes called the mystery religions. So the nice thing about the Roman system, uh, which was a problem for Christians, was that they could, uh, they could uh, what is that word, is it co-opt <laughs> other systems? They could take in other religions and just incorporate them into their system. So as you know, you could come from, the Egyptians worshiped the goddess Isis. That was one of their, ch their chief goddesses. So the worship of Isis, Isis came into the Roman Empire because Roman controlled Egypt, eventually became a province. It was extremely important province because they got all this wheat, all this uh, food from, uh, from Egypt. But the, the Romans, uh, the Roman priest and so forth, said, yeah, it's okay to bring Isis into Rome and eventually a temple and so forth. Uh, as long as you, so, so that's fine. As long as you accept the, the whole pantheon of Roman gods, you can have your gods, you know, you don't, as long as you don't. For Christians, that was a problem. <laughs> you know, they, 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 they wouldn't accept all those other gods, you know, and the Romans couldn't understand why. You can have your Jesus, but we got, you know, we got our Zeus, man. You know, we, we, got, we got our, you know, why can't you just get along here? But they couldn't, you know, and that caused them real problems. So uh, the Lords refers to religions brought into Rome, particularly these, they're called mystery religions because they were based around some mystery that only the adherents of the religion knew. You, 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 it was kind of a mystery cult sort of thing, but... That's what that's referring to, gods and lords, gods and many lords. There are many gods and many lords. I say here, yet, says Paul, even if there are so-called gods, for us Christians, there's but one God, 
one true God in the universe. But this one God includes both the Father, who is the source, that word from, all things, and for through whom we must live our lives, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the agent through whom are all things came into being. You remember John 1 kind of gives that thing. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was... He was with God, and through Him all things were made without Him. So God is the source, and, he, and Jesus is through whom all things are made. Now, in the last part of, uh, of the verse here, uh, Paul places the work of Christ and our relationship to Him in this very closest um, uh, kind of relationship to God. Um, Paul can say on the one hand, notice is there is one God, but he equally affirms the designation Lord, which in the Old Testament belongs to the one God uh, you know, of the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. This is Shema, the you know, this is what, this is, the, this is the life verse of every Israelite. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one, the Lord is one. This is, they call it the Shema. So every, every Jew knows this and they recite it. But this word Lord, you know, is talking about the God of the Old Testament. He's Lord, he's Yahweh. So now uh, Paul is applying that to Jesus, you see. He's calling him Lord. So, so uh, you know, this is, Paul doesn't feel any tension between monotheism and this distinction of the persons of the Father and Jesus Christ. And that brings out a whole Trinitarian doctrine, you know, into play and so forth. But that's Christianity. We believe in monotheism, not tritheism. And, of course, the Muslims would say, yeah, you, you've got tritheism. You've got three gods. You've got the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We say no. <laughs> the Bible is very clear that there's still one God, but there are just three persons in that one God, in that one essence and so forth. But I won't go into all that. And then we see uh, 8 through 7 through 13. Their criterion, care for a brother. In verses 7 through 13 now here, Paul returns to this discussion of the way of knowledge that he starts back in 1 through 3. So Paul will explain now that in theory, all, all, true, all true believers should know that idols are not real and they should know there's one true God. But he says not everybody has this knowledge in an experiential way. Because before, when they were pagans, before they were saved, these believers uh, believed firmly in the gods. And so now as Christians, it's not easy, it's not easy just to s set that stuff aside. It may seem easy for us, but we know ourselves that when we become Christians, it's not easy to set aside everything we were and did as unbelievers. We have beliefs and sins and practices that we just don't just set aside automatically, you know, uh, when we're saved. Now, we have the power to do it. We have new nature. We have new abilities. But that's sanctification. It takes time. Well, for these people who, I mean, that wasn't a problem for me because I was raised, you know, in Christian America and I went to church, you know, as a kid. So I never had this problem of polytheism, you know. So we don't really know exactly what that's like. We, we're not... None of us have ever come from that sort of thing. What about our silver and gold? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Now, maybe Hindus and stuff, you know, uh, Hindus who come from those kind of practices or other polytheism could have a problem, maybe, possibly, but... Um, they have more than one God? Yeah, yeah, Hindus have Bunches. hundreds. I mean, Larry would know thousands, I guess, don't they? <laughs> Yeah, they're a pantheistic too, yeah. But they have all kinds of gods. Well, they have chief gods, but they have lots of gods. So their polythe poly, uh, uh, polytheism is true there. Um, so, uh, so the problem here is that they haven't incorporated these truths fully 
And Paul says they have weak consciousnesses, weak consciences. Their, their conscience is weak. <laughs> um, and he says in verse 11, going to these pagan meals has the effect of what he calls destroying them. Let's look at that, verse 7. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificed food that is in the temple, you know, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. So contrary to the Christian claim, verse 1, that we all possess knowledge, Paul says that is not true of all believers at Corinth. Not everyone possesses this knowledge even though all believers may believe at theoretical level that an idol is no God, not all share this knowledge at the experiential, emotional level. Some are still accustomed to idols. It's not easy to disregard their old religious experience with the pagan gods. For these believers to return to the place of their former worship would mean once again to eat meat as though it were truly been sacrificed to the God. And the result would be that since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Conscience refers to our moral consciousness, what is right or wrong. But the conscience needs a source for its moral judgments. Thus, the correctness of its judgments depends on the source it draws from. Ideally, we should calibrate our conscience by the Word of God. In this case, the weakness involved here is that for some believers at Corinth, Belief that there was only one God had not been fully incorporated into their moral consciousness. If they return to the cultic meals in the pagan temples and eat sacrificial food that they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, that is a real pagan God. This would produce moral confusion and could, you know, it could lead them back into idolatry. They may be tempted to go back to this kind of system. The point is that even if, we were, if it were true that feasting in pagan temples was allowable because pagan gods don't really exist, it would still be wrong because of what it does to one's fellow believer. Now, we know it is wrong because Paul will say in chapter 10, you're worshiping demons. So we know it's wrong, but it's wrong on this level in what you're doing to your fellow believer. The, the, this believer's eating, this weak believer, is not from faith. And remember, Paul says, everything that does not come from <clears throat> faith is sin. So if we, if we do something and we believe it's wrong, it's wrong to do it. <laughs> so the point is, they're not, they're not eating from faith as these other people are, think they are. They, they, have, they, they, they believe it's really wrong, and yet they go ahead and do it. Verse 8, but food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat or no better if we do. Verse 8 probably reflects what the Corinthians were arguing in their letter, yet also in full agreement with Paul's own point of view. Paul believed that Christians are not under the Mosaic law. They don't have to obey the food laws. This is similar to what Paul says about circumcision in 719 and so forth. I had these verses up here, but remember we've talked about that, that we're not under the Mosaic law and so forth. Circumcision, uncircumcision, which is part of the Mosaic law, is not required. Neither bring, neither, uh, neither bring us to God. We are not worse if we do not eat or better if we do. So this is you know, part of our freedom, our rights we have as Christians. But as we'll see in verse 9 here, this freedom can be abused. We're no worse if we eat. We're no better if we don't eat. Verse 9. Um, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Paul warns the Corinthians need to be careful because insistence on their rights can lead to devastating effects on their fellow believers who do not share their knowledge. The idea of rights or freedom was probably a favorite term of the Corinthians that we saw in 6.12, where Paul quotes them saying, I have the right to do anything. That is the right, the freedom to act as we please without regard to others. Paul agrees with them on food laws, but warns them that this cannot be carried over to eating sacrificial meals in the temples of the city, since this could become a stumbling block to the weak. The term 
Stumbling block refers not to something that simply offends someone else, but that causes a person to be led into sin, which in this case is idolatry. So Paul could easily have said, as I keep saying, hey, this is wrong because it's worship of demons, but he wants to get at this point that even if you're right, and you are right that these gods don't exist, and even if it was therefore okay to go to the temple and eat this food because the gods don't exist, it would still be a problem because you could, by going to the temple, lead people back into idolatry. So our behavior, even if it's correct behavior, now their behavior is not correct, <laughs> but let's just assume it is correct because it's correct on one point, there are, these gods don't really exist. It's wrong in the sense that Demons are behind the gods. But even if your behavior is right, you know, we have to be careful about how that be correct behavior can affect others, is what Paul's point is, trying to get them to see here. Um, for the Corinthians, knowledge means rights. If I know something, I have the right to do it. I have the right to act. You know, and that's, that, that's true, and that's true in our own Christian lives. It's true in... Many situations we can, people can say, I have the, I know this, I have the right to do it. Um, but it could, if it has a negative effect upon a other person's spiritual life, then we have to be careful. So, you know, this is a tricky situation because, uh, I mean, sometimes, uh, and Christians, you know, have debated these kinds of things over my lifetime. But, I mean, sometimes you may say, uh, you may argue that it's okay to do something. Uh, you may say it's, uh, I'm trying to think of something here. <laughs> you may say it's, uh, you may say it's okay to go to the movie theater. You know, you may say, well, it's, it's, it's not a sin to go to the movie theater. And there may be another Christian who says, you know, oh, that's sin. You just can't go to the movie theater. Well, often, sometimes that Christian who says it's sin, and people would say that, is they're not really weaker Christians. They think of themselves as stronger Christians. <laughs> In other words, to them, it's just sin to go there. And they're not tempted to go there because you're going there. They're just trying to keep you from going because you're in sin. That's a different problem than we're talking about here. We're talking about, you know, uh, a conduct that, you, that might be okay. Even if there's a conduct that might be okay, you know, it, would be, it might be wrong to do it because it might lead this person into, into sin. And so... Uh, that's, that's a good that's a good example yeah 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 if you think that's okay then uh, you know it, it'd be a problem you know if you were doing it in front of somebody maybe who had a problem you know you might you might they might say they might, you might even egg you on and say hey come on man just have a little drink you know here it's just it's just one little drink you know whereas it could be a real problem for you so even though it might be true that there's nothing wrong with that, uh, it, it would be wrong for them to uh, uh, hurt you, you know, it could have a high would affect you, you know. So, uh, you know, I don't know that we face many of those kinds of situations a day. Maybe we, there are places where we might do that, but we need to think about, you know, how our behavior might affect younger Christians or other Christians who come into our faith. Now, it could be a problem if we had a Muslim who gets saved, you know, at, at first. Uh, they might, and you invite them over and you serve them, you know, a nice ham sandwich, you know, they don't, they don't, you know. Uh, and you might, you might say, you might say, uh, hey, you know, there's nothing wrong with eating. They've grown up in their whole lives, you know, and saying that's unclean, we can't eat that. And you're saying do that, you know, eat that. You know, that could be a problem because you're forcing them to go against their conscience. Mm -hmm. See, 
Even though there's nothing wrong with doing it, their conscience says it's wrong. And whatsoever is not of faith is sin. What if you can't do it and believing it's right, it's wrong. So it could, we could have a situation like that. We don't have as much in the United States, maybe as some other places. But anyway, the point is our knowledge should all be governed by, you know, how is this going to affect my fellow believer and how are they going to respond to this and so forth. We have to be careful about that um, kind of thing. Well, verse uh, 10, For someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols. So in the previous verse, Paul has warned the Corinthians not to use their rights so as to harm the weak. For he now explains, if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what's sacrificed to idols? Thus it's clear that those who claim to have knowledge, expressed in 1, 4, and 7, are going to the cultic meals in the temple halls and we're using that knowledge as justification to probably countermand Paul's previous instructions about not going to pagan temples. Paul's point here is that even if they will not accept Paul's previous instructions, they should at least refrain based on their knowledge, what their knowledge could do to someone with a weak conscience. Um, so as we said, a person with a weak conscience might happen to see a Christian they esteem eating in an idol's temple and be persuaded that this kind of conduct is harmless and acceptable. Um, it's possible that those with knowledge may be encouraging these weaker believers to go to the temple and uh, ultimately this could be destructive to them. Verse 11, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. So Paul explains the ones with knowledge are not acting in love toward their weak brother or sister, but instead they are being harmed by your knowledge. Paul's thinking of the harm done to the conscience of the weak, probably resulting in a former idolater falling back into the grips of idolatry. Verse 12, when you sin against them in this way, and when their conscience you sin against Christ. So this verse brings to a close the present argument by giving a theological expansion of the verse 11. The actions of those with knowledge are now declared by Paul to be sin. To sin against a brother or sister for whom Christ died is in effect to sin against Christ himself. So the net result of this is prohibition. <clears throat> you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be going to these idol temples because of how it affects other believers. Verse 18, verse 13, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall to sin. Now again, that's why I keep saying it doesn't happen to us as much because you know, there's probably no food that I can eat that causes the average American to fall into sin. Well, maybe the fat sin, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Hey, I can say it because I got it. But uh, yeah, but not really, you know, there's not, but you could think of, I was thinking of the Muslim kind of thing or maybe Hindu or something like that. Um, the therefore, I say, is a strong inferential conjunction suggests that Paul is bringing his opening argument to a close here. He closes with a general principle that he himself follows that goes beyond the particular issue of going to meals in the temple. Now he says, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall in sin, I will never eat meat again. This is, you know, kind of exaggeration, but it serves to make the point that Paul is willing to go this far for meat in general. How much more should Christians be willing to give up eating meat in idol temples? Um, so this issue of attendance at pagan temples is just a synonym for a more basic problem, and that is insisting on their rights or freedom to do what they want to do in the name of knowledge. Um, but Paul, remember, has emphasized knowledge puffs up while love builds up. So it's primarily love that is the proper concern for the spiritual well-being of our fellow brothers or sisters. 
that should determine our ethical behavior, not our own rights or freedom, which Paul expresses in other epistles, as you know. Let's look at Paul's own example, chapter 9, verses 1 through 27. Before he gets to chapter 10, real prohibition. Primarily in this chapter, Paul is offering himself as an example of self-sacrificial behavior that the Corinthians need to emulate. <clears throat> See, they're not willing to give up their rights. Paul says, I'm going to give you an example of someone who is willing to give up their rights. Paul uses himself as an example of someone who voluntarily relinquishes his apostolic rights for the greater good of the gospel, which is what chapter 8 has been all about. They should be concerned about the greater good of the gospel. The implication is that the Corinthians should follow their apostles' example, relinquish any presumed right that they think they have to attending pagan temples so as to avoid harming, causing harm to their fellow believers. Well, Paul's apostleship, verses 1 through 3. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord Jesus? Jesus excuse me. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? So Paul begins here with establishing his apostleship. He begins with four rhetorical questions, each expecting a positive answer. Am I not free? Yes. Am I not apostle? Yes. Uh, Garland in his commentary suggests this paraphrase. As you well know, I certainly am free. As you well know, I certainly am an apostle. As you well know, I certainly have seen the Lord and as you know, you are my work in the Lord. So these questions are calling attention to what the Corinthians already know. And they sort of set the stage for the argument to follow. And they kind of, the outline really, the argument. Uh, the first question, am I not free? The second question, am I not an apostle? Are now discussed, but in reverse order. So he's going to first tackle that first one, am I not an apostle? I'm not an apostle. He's going to, he's going to, uh, he's going to uh, <clears throat> justify his apostleship, give proof of his apostleship. And then, am I not free? He's going to talk about that. So in verses 1 through 14, he's going to turn, he's going to talk about his rights as an apostle. He's an apostle, and I have certain rights. And then in verse 15, he's going to talk about uh, his freedom to not use those rights. So remember, am I not apostle? That's 1 through 14. Am I not free? This is verses 15 through 23. And the point is, again, is I'm an apostle. I have rights, but I'm willing to give up those rights for the sake of the gospel. And you should be willing to. Um, but they're not. They're just saying, hey, I got this knowledge. I, got, I want to go to the temple. You know, I don't care what other people say. I don't care what, how it affects others. You know, this is my right. I say the last two questions present Paul's own view of apostleship by establishing that he is indeed an apostle. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? First he says, have I not seen our Lord? Now Paul's referring here, remember, to his Damascus road experience. And he believed that his experience was more than just a vision. <clears throat> he, 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 he thinks of it as kind of a resurrection appearance um, like the other apostles had. Remember he'll say in 1 Corinthians 15 later on, for I received, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And He appeared to Cephas, see, and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters, most of whom are still living, but some have fallen asleep. And then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, He appeared to me also as one abnormally born. So He, he equates sort of His seeing the Lord with more just a vision, but sort of as an apostolic confirmation, an apostolic uh, vision, uh, or, or, or actually 
appearance justifying his apostleship. I say second, Paul says, are you not the result of my work in the Lord? This is Paul's second proof, first proof. He's, the Lord spoke to Paul and he had a confirmation, you know, and of course we know the Damascus Road, how he gave him the commission. You're going to be my representative to the Gentiles. You know, I'm going to send you there. You're going to be my apostle to the Gentiles. So this is Paul's second proof, the establishing of churches in new areas. This is Romans 15, 17 through 22. He says, Therefore I glory in Jesus Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, it's written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have been hindered from coming to you. So Paul has been given this commission as an apostle of Gentiles to take the gospel to these Gentiles. <clears throat> the other apostles didn't do that. You know, it seems, I always think of it as a strange thing because Jesus gives the Great Commission in Matthew 28, go into all the world, you know. But they don't do, they don't do much with that, you know. Now, we, it's hard to know because later tradition says the apostles did filter out. You know, there's a tradition that Matthew went to India. I don't know, you know, there's, there's a tradition that the apostles did. But initially, they stuck around Jerusalem pretty much, you know. And they went to Samaria, obviously, <clears throat> and uh, but not not really outside of Israel, pretty much until the Apostle Paul comes along here. Um, so the point is that the Corinthians' existence as true Christians authenticates his apostleship, um, and he talks about this in Second Corinthians ten. I won't boast beyond the limits, you know, uh, proper limits, will confine my boasting to the sphere of service God has assigned to us, a sphere that includes you. So the point is, God has assigned to me the task of taking the gospel to you. I'm an apostle. So, uh, you know, I'm just doing what God has told me to do. Uh, remember, he says, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you don't have many fathers for in, the for in Jesus Christ Jesus. I became your father through the gospel. So the point is, uh, you owe your existence to my preaching the gospel to you. I am an apostle to you. Verse 2, even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The reference to others may refer to other Christians maybe, or other churches. That is, Paul may simply be allowing the hypothetical possibility, now he is really an apostle universally, but the hypothetical possibility that others outside the Corinthians' immediate circle may have reason for not thinking of him as an apostle, probably the others refers to churches Paul didn't establish. But Paul says, while he might not be apostle of other churches and that he did not found them, he certainly is that to the Corinthians. That's the point of the final sentence. You are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So this word seal, remember, is this indicates ownership or authentication. Uh, and he applies it into their relationship to him. So their very existence authenticates his apostleship. If he's some sort of false guy, then there's some sort of false group. You know. Um, so this assertion of his apostleship uh, reinforces his right to prohibit them from eating in idol temples. But his point in this chapter is not primarily to establish his superior rights as an apostle, which he will subsequently explain he's willing to give up uh, to win others. Uh, the Corinthians, um, 
So he's got these rights as an apostle, but he's willing to give them up. And as I said, the Corinthians should be willing to do the same thing. Even though that's going to be politically damaging, socially damaging, you know, uh, that's going to be a difficult thing. Um, and, you know, it's going to be more of a problem in, if the Lord tarries. As I said, I grew up, you know, in really a kind of a Christian culture. So you could be anything in the neighborhood that I grew up in and be a Christian. You could be any profession. You could be any politician. And you could be a Christian. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> but now, you know, that's not so easy to say, you know that you could do that now, and it may be difficult in the future. And it was certainly true for first century Christians. Uh, I mean, what if you are a, like we see in the book of Acts, priest and pagan temples get saved. You know, well, if you're a priest in a pagan temple, you can't, you've lost your job, you know, you can't do that anymore. So this becomes more of a problem, a real, a real problem for them. Uh, and this is why Christians had eventually got persecuted because they were just so countercultural. They just, why can't you guys fit into society like every other group does? You know, you, you, know, you, you worship ISIS, you can come, you know, I mean, you, you can have your gods, but you, you, just, you guys can't fit in. You just, you're just so counter to our culture with that they, they were suspected of all kinds of weird things, that they're some sort of cult group, they're drinking blood, they're they're doing all kinds of weird things because they just won't fit into the culture at all. They're so countercultural. And uh, that, that caused them tremendous problems and persecution ultimately. He says, this is, my, um, this is my defense to those who set in judgment on me. What Paul will now defend is this seemingly odd behavior, giving up his right to material support from the Corinthians. His failure to make material support would seem odd to them since itinerant teachers in Paul's day commonly gained their financial support by charging a fee for their instruction. Others accepted the patronage of some wealthy person or group. Traveling teachers who were concerned about their reputation, however, would often work at a trade. Paul refused the patronage and worked at his trade not only in Corinth but also in Thessalonica. He did so to remove hindrances to the gospel, and so he could offer it free of charge. So if you read much about ancient world, that was just a common practice. You know, people would go into towns, they had knowledge, and they just didn't get up and speak for nothing. They, they would charge a fee. People would pay uh, to hear this kind of thing. Uh, nobody pays today. They just go on the Internet and get whatever they get for free. But not in the ancient world. Uh, and not in, even in, up to the modern time. You know, you, you basically had to pay for whatever. Uh, so this patronage thing was a common thing. Uh, Paul refuses that because he thinks this could be a hindrance to the gospel. Remember in Acts 18, it talks about Paul's, this is the establishment of the church at Corinth. <clears throat> Paul left Athens, went to Corinth, and he met Aquila and Priscilla. Paul went to stay with them because he was a tent maker. And he worked with them. He, he, he got it. And then it, it says later on, and you know, he says he stopped working as a tent maker because he got offerings from Macedonia. He got money brought to him and he didn't have to. He could devote himself fully to the gospel. Um, Thessalonica, remember, he tells them very clearly, you remember our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while he preached the gospel. So this is, becoming, this, this is what we're going to find in chapter 9. Paul's going to say, I'll, tell you, I'll just tell you what he says he's going to say. He's going to say, the reason that I didn't take any money from you is because I want to be able to say the gospel is free. It doesn't cost anything. Now... <laughs> And that's why we in our church, you know, when we have visitors come, or we always say, Larry gets up and says every week, 
Now we're taking our offering and this is for members, you know, and if you're visiting, we don't want you to, because we don't want anybody to think we're charging to hear the gospel because we're not charging to hear the gospel, that kind of thing. This is exactly what Paul is doing here. He wants to remove any hindrance from them. Well, that takes us to 9, 4 through 14 and it's 8, 15. So Lord willing, we'll pick this up next week. All right. Thank you so much. And thanks for coming. We'll see you.